Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. So, today we're talking about mobile homes. Maybe sometimes we're talking about trailer parks. And, you know, I mean, these words, these terms, they bear all kinds of freight, depending also on what your experience of them are. I mean, I got to tell you, my direct experience of mobile homes is some friends of mine who are some public school teachers who retired well, wanted really to move to live in the greater Los Angeles area, moved out there to a beautifully tended mobile home park, where which was not cheap, <laughs> and where there's sort of the equivalent of a condo board. And it turns out if you want to paint your mobile home a beautiful shade of purple, you probably can't because they got rules and design review and stuff. And so there's sort of that, and that's a reality that's out there. And, and there's other kinds uh, of realities too. And then as we were getting ready to do this, some listener uh, suggested I watch something called Trailer Park Boys, which is this mockumentary series on Netflix, which explores, you know, the most dire stereotypes of trailer parks uh, being full of, you know, meth cooking, day drinking, handgun discharging guys and and, yeah, and some sainted old ladies who have Jack Russell Terriers who eat somebody else's hash brownies and uh, and I, I like I, I sort of don't even really know what to do with all that because being in public radio, what I want is for mobile homes to be the realization of that two that double American dream that we can be horizontally mobile, we can pick up and go and pursue opportunity and pursue happiness, uh, and that we can be um, vertically mobile too. That you can be upwardly upwardly mobile. That you can maybe use a, a mobile home as an entry level purchase. You own something, you know, and and, and maybe go from there. But I'm starting to realize as we got ready for this show and as Josh Nalea produced this show that all of my public radio ideas about this are probably kind of wrong. And the important thing to do would be to talk to people who actually had explored uh, mobile homes and mobile home parks, sometimes known as manufactured home parks, and who people who'd lived in them. Uh, and that's where we're going to start with Angie Cavallari, writer for the Huffington Post, Healthline, The Reset, and others. She's the author of Trailer Trash, an 80s memoir. Uh, Angie Cavallari is joining us from Denver, uh, from studios there. And welcome to our show. Oh, thanks for having me, Colin. So uh, maybe just, I don't usually like to start with the title of books, but I mean, in, in a way, with the title of the book, you're kind of uh, meeting uh, one of the big questions uh, right there on, on its own front lines. Uh, trailer trash is such an ungallant term. I remember when James Carville was trying to dismiss the claims of Paula Jones. He said, drag a $100 bill through a trailer park. You'd be surprised what you'd get, which struck me as just an incredibly uncivil thing to say uh, about anybody. So so why why start with your with that as your title? Well, I mean, obviously, it's a provocative title. Yep. It gets your attention for sure. But originally, I changed it to that title because one of my many jobs in the trailer park was to pick up trash. Mm -hmm. We were the waste management. So I thought, well, that would be an apropos title. Um, and also to kind of shed light on it. It is a derogatory term. So it certainly brought got your attention and many other people as well. It was not meant to be derogatory in the slightest. And if you've read my book, yeah. then you kind of understand how I feel about the tenants, that it's, you know, some of those relationships were very vernacular in some cases, so. 
So we should say that your relationship to this, as as you just implied, uh, is a little bit different. You are not uh, um, somebody who wound up living in a trailer park. Your parents actually bought a trailer park. Well, we lived in it. I mean, yeah, we, well, we, yeah. So, but you're absolutely right. So for us, we were, we had the means to live elsewhere, but my parents decided to raise us there in the trailer park. Um, but because of schools, of course, this being, uh, you know, an, an area that wasn't exactly affluent, um, they did send us to private school so that we still had the education. But the bigger education actually came from living in the trailer park and growing up there as well, um, which was basically meant I was straddling both sides of the track. So every day I would go to school with these kids that weren't just public school educated, but they they had quite a bit of money. And then every day I would come home to the trailers. And, um, you know, we didn't call them trailers, by the way. Mm. Never. Right. It was, a, yeah, always called them mobile homes. Um, but these were my people. I, I kind of have both sides of it. Right. You know, these dualities are really interesting. Later, uh, with one of our other guests, we're going to hear about, and I'm sure you experienced this too. On the one hand, you were trying to conceal from your uh, your colleagues and peers in the mobile home park, or the people you knew there anyway, that you went to this fancier, more exclusive kind of school. Um, another thing that happens, and you probably saw this too, is people who live in mobile home parks are often at pains not to let other people know where they live. In other words, they would really rather not divulge their address when they're dealing with people elsewhere in the world. That's absolutely true. I mean, that was true for me. Um, And and some of the tenants that were there that didn't necessarily choose that life. Um, I should also note that there were no children living in our trailer park, and it wasn't an over 55. So it was very, it was extremely odd not to have any kids living there. But I think it provided a little bit more of a cushion. Maybe, you know, my parents in hindsight didn't want us to see that. Um, So I never experienced seeing other children live like this. um, Mm -hmm. But I did keep it from my classmates. It was not something that I divulged. I knew better. I just knew. So who who was living there? I mean, it, it, there isn't one answer to that question. And, and right. you in your book describe both uh, people that you came to cherish and people that you came, well, occasionally even maybe to fear. Um, <laughs> but 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 so who, who I, as you describe maybe the melange of people who who wind up there, how do you describe it? Yeah, it, it's pretty much a mixed bag. Um, there are people that I want to point out that were very intelligent, well-educated. We had a computer programmer that lived there. And out of choice, he lived there. He wanted to work as hard as he played, and he chose to spend a lot of his funds on a good time. Um, He didn't want the judgment that sometimes the suburbs can bring, and he preferred to live there. Um, And I wouldn't even call him an alcoholic. I mean, this he did not like the judgment of living in the suburbs. He preferred the relax to do whatever you want. This is where I'm going to live. Right. Let's pursue that for a, sec- a second more, too, because that's an interesting idea that, you know, so mobile home parks are a lot of different things. But the way that you're describing them now, they're a place where maybe some uh, of the judgments uh, and rules uh, and unspoken rules of society are a little bit more relaxed, where people can indulge themselves. And and, and they're there either because they've chosen to indul- indulge themselves in certain ways or they can't stop indulging themselves in certain ways. Is that reasonable? I, I, that's very reasonable. And I think that's something I've, you know, I've read a few studies and um, your upcoming guests as well. Um, excellent book. And I just, I do think there is this misunderstanding about, hey, there is a segment of society that chooses to live there that is not on the up and up. Um, and they are what we used to call flying under the radar. And what that means is, you know, they did not want to be a part of normal society. Maybe they were escaping uh, jail. I, you know, it was hard to know. Um, but they were there on purpose to fly under the radar, for sure. 
So you were in a unique position, living uh, among them, but also being part of the family that kind of had to make the whole system work. So what are the challenges to making the whole system work? So, you know, we were a mom and pop rental mobile home community, which is a little bit different than the ones today that are kind of engulfing all of the mom and pop ones. These are the corporations that are coming in. We actually owned and operated the whole thing. So if a toilet needed snaking, you can bet that my dad was going to do it. You know, if a repair had to be made on the refrigerator because we own the units as well, then we would do that. Cleaning, picking up the trash, mowing the lawns, I, I did that too. So that w- that was part of our day-to-day job. And I, I saw how some people lived, for better or worse. Um, but yeah, it was it was all hands on deck. And it was the same way for my grandmother's trailer parks as well. And they were owner-operated and run, which also meant that we cared more about the tenants that live there. I mean, they were part of our community. We were on site with them every day, shoulder to shoulder. So it was a very different relationship than a lot of the communities that are springing up today. You know, I think it's interesting to talk about sort of getting in and getting out. So um, one reason, if you maybe you do have a felony record or something like that, it might be hard to rent an apartment in in certain areas. Um, So that's another way that you can maybe escape your past a little bit or get a fresh start. Absolutely. Well, yeah, and that's part of that flying under the radar. I mean, we had people, you know, the the, the Tampa Police Department was in our park all the time. Mm. I mean, it was not, I was so used to their police radios going off that I, it would just became part of the soundtrack of my life. I mean, there was always somebody that was, you know, getting physically beat. There was somebody who had an arrest warrant, um, you know, running from the cops that shouldn't have been there. I mean, there was a lot of shady stuff that was occurring in this environment as well that was very different and not, not conducive to your friends that you mentioned in L.A. It was not that environment in the slightest. <laughs> right. So the other place I said coming and going. Going is, I don't know, and just even talking to people uh, about how mobile homes and public policy intersect. It seems like eviction is one of the places where the rubber really meets the road, that there just are times when you got to get rid of somebody, either because they're not paying the rent or they're just their behavior is defaulting even out of what whatever the norms are there. So, so what happens then? Your book suggests that this can be kind of a scary process. It is a scary process. And, you know, again, as, as the owners and operators and pr- proprietors of our trailer park, you know, it's very hard to evict somebody. I mean, at least in the 80s it was. And we didn't like to do it. I mean, it's 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 a horrible process. You have to go to court. You have to prove nonpayment. And you have to go without getting paid for a few months and prove that to evict them. Then you bring in a court order. And after that, violence could occur afterwards. And a lot of the time threats did happen um, towards, you know, as a child, even these tenants that we thought were kind and wonderful people well, you that sh- you always should, waved. You should mention Harry. <laughs> Harry Harry is the great example of that, right? The a guy who yeah. seemed really nice until. Yes, correct. And I don't know if, I mean, my parents were very good about working with people if they, you know, fell on hard times, like, and, and they were honest about it. And he came to my parents and said, look, you know, we're trying to make ends meet. I lost my job. What can we give you? These were mostly people that just were like, you know what, for whatever reason, I'm not going to pay you. I don't have it. I'm on a binge, what have you. Harry's situation, Harry was always really kind. He lived directly across the street from our driveway. And when I say across the street, I mean like a little narrow little sidewalk. It's just wider than the sidewalk. It's not like they were far away on the other side of the street. Mm-hmm. And uh, Harry came in and, and, yeah, threatened my life, my siblings' lives. Um, it said some really disgusting and horrible things I can't even repeat on the radio. And, and seeing that, wow, that it was only shocking because I thought he was nice. The others you knew to expect. You were like, that guy, shady, go. But this guy surprised me. 
You know, there's, an, there's an interesting point that you make, Angie. Um, I think, you know, people listening to this are listening to thinking about the idea of your childhood being saturated with exposure to people using drugs, people getting involved in things they shouldn't be getting involved in. They probably and obviously you were going to this Christian school where that you were being yeah. told all the time that that was all the devil's handiwork uh, yes. anyway. But I, I think the other thing is you had an opportunity to see from a very early age what the downside of all this was. I mean, do you think that you're a more of a straight arrow because you grew up in this area where you could sort of see uh, where all this leads? I, d- I don't know that. Um, you know, my brother and sister, you know, turned out okay, I guess. My, my family did fall apart after we sold the trailer park and then moved into a trailer in Gibsonton, Florida. Um, so I won't, I won't say that it was positive, but I have no regrets about it either. I, I'm glad that I had the experience and I'm happy for it. And uh, again, no regrets. And that was kind of part of writing this book and what prompted me to do that. It was coming to terms with it. So looking back, no. And I didn't have a miserable childhood. I, it didn't start to go south until we moved farther south to Gibsonton. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. And the exposure, I mean, when you're young, you know, until you start coming of age, about 12 or 13, you're like, wait a second, that guy was hammered. I don't, he, <laughs> it made me, it, it was, some of it escaped me because I didn't expect it. You know, I'm like eight or nine years old. I didn't really understand that Harry was three sheets to the wind, you know. So it, 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 that realization can, comes on a little bit later as you get older. Um, I'm wondering also, though, whether this also taught you to see uh, different levels and different shades of goodness in people. And there are people who, who are very positively depicted in your book, but maybe they're not exactly central casting's uh, idea of a model citizen. I'm thinking of maybe Steve Winters or Bill Kennedy. I don't know. You want to pick one of these people and just sort of talk about somebody that you really grew to like that you maybe wouldn't have met in a different environment. Yeah. So Bill, and and I still know Bill. Bill has met my children. He's a great guy and Steve is as well. And they were great people. They were, they became very close family friends. Um, and you're right. I would have never known them. Um, but there was also, they were the other side. They were educated. They were hardworking. They did take care of their unit. They did take care of their yard. Um, and, and there was, even within that community, you could still see the more responsible homeowners, the more responsible renters that live there. And they were, they were funny and different and laid back. And that was one thing you really could drop all of the decorum that I had to keep up at school. I could drop all of it and be very comfortable there. So there was some good characters. And and Florence was probably <laughs> the one that was most, <laughs> she's the first uh, tenant that I mentioned. And she's my, she's, I was just so fascinated by her. It was also a very, very sad tale. It's not that we were closer that I knew her, um, but I was so curious about her, like where she went every day. Because, you know, as a kid, I didn't know she was going to a bar and, and getting blotto and then driving home. I mean, I had no idea why she was acting the way she was, but I always was curious, like, what was she doing while she was gone? And then we'd come back in such a rotten mood. I mean, totally out of her mind. Um, and she, I was just curious by her. She was never happy when we saw her, but when she was at the bar, the tenants would tell me, oh, she had, she was telling all the jokes. She was two different people within my world. I was, wow. It was crazy. You might want to mention uh, one of the uh, sort of damage control measures your dad tried to impose on Florence uh, to keep her from driving. (laughs) 
So you have to remember that in the early 80s, right, MAD wasn't, it was it was just starting to form. There was a lot of DUIs out there, and we didn't even call them DUIs. And so the police officers, because she was an older woman, would bring her home safely, I mean, completely out of her mind, or let her just leave because she was right down the street. And so my dad got tired of it because she he was he didn't want to be on the road with her intoxicated. So he started putting water in her gas tank. He would bring over the hose <laughs> and, and put and I'm like, Dad, what are you doing? He's like, I'm taking care of this myself. And he would do that all the time because she was parked. She shared our driveway on the back of her house. That's how close she was. She was basically in my yard. And uh, yeah, and sometimes it worked. Like she couldn't get it to start. She'd be upset and track down a tenant like, Dad, I can't get it to turn over. And she sometimes she'd walk or get a ride. She was going out for a good time. No one was stopping her. You know, Not and, my dad. And, and I think, you know, I mean, even, uh, as I say, some of the positively displayed people, it reminds you of how narrow some of our notions are of what an upstanding person is. In other words, the, those of us who live in pretty constrained American suburban neighborhoods. So, like, you, just to go back to Steve Winters, you know, one of the guys that you really came to like and stayed friends with. But he got arrested all the time, right, because of, he, because of his girlfriend? <laughs> Yes. Yeah. So they would get into these fights. They were they were arguments of passion. And it wasn't like the other tenants that were beating their wives or girlfriends. This they those the two of them would just get in these knockdown drag out fights where they weren't even maybe not even getting physical, but somebody would call the cops and then the TPD would show up. Tampa Police Department would show up and he would be, you know, he had a few drinks and he didn't want to be arrested and didn't think it was fair and would get it, you know, get into a fight, like fight the cops, which, you know, just don't ever do that. And (laughs) they pinned him down and would charge him with assault and battery. And it happened all the time. It happened all the time. You mentioned um, regular. Uh, you mentioned Gibsonton, which is uh, a different place. This is not. This is more what your grandparents' uh, place uh, or one of the trailer parks that, that they owned. Uh, you guys uh, eventually did wind up there for a while, and Gibsonton is kind of famous, right? It's the Carney capital of the world. Explain how that intersects with the world of mobile homes. So we we actually lived on a in a double wide on its own piece of land. Mm-hmm. Um, so we didn't live in the trailer park, but my grandmother's trailer park was like a couple of miles away. And that trailer park had children and that was depressing. It was not like her other retirement community where it was over 55 and they had bingo night and retirees. I mean, this was a very different environment. It was very sad. I hated going over there. And um, to be honest with you, I think it it didn't do any favors for my family. They We started to fall apart at that point. I don't think it was the right environment, even though we weren't in a trailer park anymore. Um, but yeah, Gibsonton, so Tampa is, you know, you, we had more of a city environment around, and then all of a sudden Gibsonton was this whole other world. Like there wasn't an affluent area of Gibsonton. There isn't to this day. There's no affluent, <laughs> there's zero affluence there. Um, but it was fast. I mean, like I said, I still, even looking back is, is, as bitter as I sometimes am about my family falling apart, I also wouldn't regret that either. I mean, it was just a, in a totally different view um, of the people that lived there. And there was great people that lived there as well um, that were just trying to get by in life. We should say, once again, this is uh, one of the things the things that Gibsonton catered to are people in the carnival and circus business. So although there was no affluent area, there were places where the zoning laws allowed you to, for example, have an elephant, right? Yes. Now, my neighbors didn't have an elephant, but they had, um, I remember when we moved, when we first saw our new place, down the street was a giant uh, Ferris wheel with the lights on it, the kind that you would see at like a county fair or one of those pop-up fairs in the church parking lot, right? Yeah. And I thought there was 
like, is there a fair going on? Like, I'm serious. I had no idea. And they're like, no, those are your neighbors. And I said, what are you, what are you talking about? And I ended up making friends with that kid, but they never let me ride it. Never. They were like, no. I'm like, I just want to get on because you're playing Bon Jovi and there's lights going. Okay, I can't get on it. But yeah, it was weird. Now, my grandmother's, the front of her trailer park, they also had rides and games, but they mostly did concessions. So all of those concessions for corn dogs and cotton candy, those were all on the front of her property on a private home. And they also had lots of exotic animals. I never saw an elephant, though. I would have liked that, but there was no elephant there. Angie, let me ask one more question, then we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with more of you and and more of Catherine McTavish, our next guest. But um, when people meet you now, um, are they surprised to find out that you had kind of a weird childhood? Yes, they are. And I I just... it wasn't this big held secret, but if nobody asked me, I just didn't say anything. In fact, I would never say I lived in Gibsonton. I would always say I lived in Riverview, Florida, because it was the next town over that wasn't, there was no stigma attached to it. So, yeah. All right. So uh, we're talking to Angie Cavallari right now, writer for the Huffington Post and other publications, and she's the author of Trailer Trash, an 80s memoir. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to return to that thing I talked about uh, about at the beginning, that the mobile home in some ways contained several American dreams. Some of those dreams came true better than others, depending on the place, the time, the people, the circumstances. We'll tell you more. We're back. We're still talking about mobile homes. Uh, sometimes we're talking about trailer parks. Uh, and I should say that one of the things we did do is, since we're here in Connecticut, reach out to some of the people who are uh, kind of public policy experts on those kinds of housing choices in Connecticut. And nobody, for some reason or other, felt comfortable coming on the show to talk about the state of uh, land use law and eviction law and things like that here in Connecticut. So make of that whatever you will. Well, uh, And that's what we're going to do, too. Angie Cavallari is going to stay with us, writer for The Huffington Post and other public Publications, author of Trailer Trash and 80s Memoir. Joining us also, uh, Catherine McTavish, uh, Director of uh, Equity, Inclusion, and Diversity Initiatives, as well as Associate Professor at the College of Public Health and Human Sciences at Oregon State University. Uh, also, I think I said Oregon wrong. Uh, she's the co-author of Single Wide, Chasing the American Dream in a Rural Trailer Park. So, Catherine McTavish, welcome to our conversation. Uh, great to be here, Colin. So maybe let's just talk about what mobile homes, you know, they seem to be kind of a post-World War II phenomenon. And part of that double dream uh, that uh, was so rampant in America, the nation, that you could pursue happiness horizontally by moving across the country and that you could pursue happiness vertically by trying to be upwardly mobile. Um, the mobile home seemed anyway, uh, I would assume, to contain elements of both of those promises. Right, it did initially, um, and it was really an answer to a housing shortage post-World War II. Um, it did, the early versions, of course, allowed you to actually be mobile, should you choose to, and also to achieve that desired status of home ownership. We so, know now they're not mobile anymore. Right, right. Uh, you can't just pick up and go. Um, so say a little bit more, though, because you, you talk about that uh, very much in the past tense. So if there was a dream and the dream died, how did it die? I don't think the dream is dead yet. I think we still have a lot of optimism among, certainly among the families that we spoke to, um, who really did believe that um, moving into homeownership by purchasing a, 
a manufactured home, mobile home trailer, would um, really serve as a rung on a housing tenure ladder that would allow them then to move on to more, uh, more conventional housing. But it, as the book describes, it didn't work out that way. Well, one, one of the things that seems to be different is um, if you buy a house, you, you buy a house. Uh, and you own your land, you own your house, uh, you have a relationship with the bank probably for a very long time. Uh, but the mobile home uh, ownership relationship, the mobile home relationship itself, there, there's more players and more stakeholders, I guess, starting with what you call the mobile home industrial complex. Right, Colin, there are. And purchasing a, a mobile home is much more like purchasing a vehicle, really. Um, you don't have the same protections in place that you have when you do a conventional mortgage where you'd be working with a titling company. Um, certainly the land ownership or lack of land ownership um, plays a big part in how you're able to access particular financial mechanisms. Um, I, I want to swing back to that, but Angie, I know that one thing that you found or that your parents found, because there there were, I think, sometimes two different conditions uh, of living uh, in, in a mobile home park. People who actually owned their unit uh, were probably a little bit different as tenants than people who were actually renting the mobile home unit. Is that a reasonable thing to say? That's absolutely true. And you mentioned both of the tenants earlier, Steve Winters and Bill Kennedy. They actually own their units um, and they cared very much what happened in the park. They did not want it to fall to pieces. They wanted people to take care of their lots and 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 not bring in riffraff or, you know, have the cops called. They they did very much care about that community because they did own. So, um, Catherine, um, uh, so the, the dream was, okay, so I don't have a lot of money right now. Uh, I'm just getting started. So I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to buy a mobile home or I'm going to get a mobile home. I'm going to live in a mobile home park. That's the first step. And I'm going to climb the ladder. And 25 years from now, I'll have a nice little house somewhere on a suburban side street. Um, That seems not to be the way the ladder works. It seems as though the mobile home experience was more of a trap than a ladder. Why, Why is that? Right, Colin. And that, we do describe that in there as part, partly as an effect of the uh, mobile home industrial complex. So the way in which the homes are financed can often lock people into something that really isn't as affordable as they initially thought. Um, those upfront first purchase costs are one thing, but then you start adding on pretty exorbitant interest rates. We had a lot of interest rates above 13% for the, for the loans that individuals were able to get. Um, and then there's the lot rent. So you're having to continuously pay uh, for the site that you're parking your home on. And that lot rent increases annually, sometimes at the rate of inflation and sometimes a little bit quicker than inflation. So that continues to add costs. Also, our families were, in, in our study, tended to access some kind of lower-end manufactured housing. So the heating and cooling costs were also pretty significant, which added to the operating costs, as well as the upkeep. So issues um, we heard... And units as young as five years old, major um, structural issues happening that, that cost families um, significantly to hold on to that. So, Catherine, you, you as an academic are trying to st- uh, study these people, study people who live in these mobile home parks. I'm wondering, though, I mean, thinking about Angie's book and some of the characters that she described, there are certain people who probably wouldn't be that interested in being part of some kind of long-term academic study, that the people who are there uh, to to live below the radar or not be on the up and up, uh, to use a couple of Angie's terms, might not be that interested in participating in your study. Was it hard to, to talk to all kinds of people in mobile home parks? It was, Colin, and we were focusing really on families who were raising kids, so families that had school-age kids. But we certainly heard from families in all of our different parks that um, 
that you know you're not you're not talking to everybody because you're not getting in that house and you're not getting in that house and you're not getting in that house because things were going on that obviously people would not want someone from the university knowing about. You know, I, I want to come back to uh, Angie, and I want to come back to where Angie and I started too because I want to talk to both of you about this, but. Um, it's funny because uh, Josh Nalea, who produced this show uh, at my behest, had produced another show last year about uh, people with red hair. And I, I maintain that it's one of the few available prejudices uh, left. You can you can say things about gingers and make fun of them and, and in a way that you really can't uh, suitably or acceptably make fun of the physical characteristics of almost any other kind of people. You, but you can still do ginger shaming. I don't know why that is. But this is another area. You know, Angie, there's, there's not, not as big a price to be paid for calling somebody trailer trash uh, as there is for using other kinds of ethnic or racial slurs or maybe even certain kinds of uh, uh, of economic slurs. Although I feel like the economics of this is a big part of it, right? You don't have enough money for a regular house. I don't know. When, when somebody gets called trailer trash or when that word is uh, term is slung around, Angie, what do you think is happening? Well, I mean, obviously, someone's trying to elevate themselves higher than you and, and put you down to make, build themselves up. I mean, if that, you know, that that never happened to me in school because I kept my life very separate, my trailer park. They didn't come over to my house for sleepovers. I went to theirs. Never. I never discussed that. It was never out there. So I never had to encounter that. I will tell you, though, I was the first line of my book is trailer park owners never used the word trailer. We never did because it was it was negative. And but the but the tenants did. They, they did. They, they tossed around, and maybe because it was the 80s, but they tossed around uh, trailer trash and uh, almost gave it a reverent term amongst themselves. I never said it, but it, it happened for sure. Um, another place uh, that this, I want to go back to Catherine on this, but another place this plays out uh, is in media. Uh, here's a little compilation for how things sound in movies and TV series. That particular Starfighter game was supposed to be delivered to Vegas. Not some flea-speck trailer park in the middle of tumbleweeds and tarantulas. By the power and authority invested in me, by the Trailer Park Supervisors Act, I am officially condemning this What? That's all I have for me and my kitties. Mobile homes are stupid. You know, they're like Playmobile houses. They're just all plastic made and shitty. It's built beautifully, just like any other house. I guess this is not really my idea of a home. It's a house. A home is what you build inside of it. So you're hearing uh, clips from this last Starfighter trailer park, boys, mobile homes. Uh, Catherine McTavish, I don't think there is such a thing as an acceptable prejudice. But if there is an acceptable prejudice, this seems like one of the one of the last frontiers of this, that people would be uncomfortable expressing other kinds uh, of uh, of biases, feel kind of OK looking down their noses at trailer parks. What did you learn about that? Yeah, um, very much uh, what Angie described, that it's a real um, stigma, real prejudice, um, still today, um, and a term that's easily sort of flung around. Um, we talk about it as being a toxic slur because it really denigrates a whole group of people based simply on their address rather than knowledge about individuals. Um, maybe mention uh, like the, the fairly heartbreaking story of the kid who was in Little League. Oh, yeah. So the family had, um, the child was playing Little League, and, and the, um, his parents who lived in the park, had befriended some folks um, at the game. Like you do, you sit in the stands with the other parents, and uh, the other parents kept kind of pushing on things. Like, you know, so where, do you, where exactly do you live? And, and they tried to skirt around it kind of the way Angie was describing, by mentioning, you know, a, a area of town rather than specifically the, the park itself. 
And after a few weeks, they finally felt comfortable enough to sort of say, hey, well, we live in, in the trailer park, and, and uh, that was it. The relationship was over. Um, maybe you could say a little bit, too, about how this plays out. I mean, you looked at different areas, and, and I, I mean, every area of the country has its own version of who who is seeking maybe without as much hope as they might imagine, upward mobility. So I'm guessing that the mental image of somebody of who lives in a mobile home park in rural Illinois or New Mexico or North Carolina, it would probably vary quite a bit based on which one of those places we're talking about, or does it not vary, vary that much? Um, the populations demographically were similar, except for, as you indicate, um, ethnicity yeah. was different. So in the New Mexico park, we had largely Hispanic families. And when I'd ask the question, you know, who was the first in your family to live here? People would say, I don't know. We've just always been here. So very strong sense of being integrated into the community there. Um, in North Carolina, with the African-American population, very close attachments to church. So those are the places where individuals were, you know, kind of getting their identity and their social network um, versus Illinois, where the families really felt like they were shunned. And this was a community that, um, you know, had had experienced some real upscale development, so there really was a haves and have not divide. So, um, Angie, I know that you read Catherine's book, and, you know, she talks about that whole idea of, oh, I don't know, we've always been here, and it always it begins to feel like a mobile home park is an inheritable uh, condition or something. But uh, she also does write about uh, marrying out, and, Angie, I know you reacted strongly to that idea. Maybe, Angie, first of all, explain marrying out and what it said to you. So, so yeah, so I, unfortunately, you know, my parents were very work brickle, but I was never told, I was told to just marry myself out of the environment I lived in. I was raised that way. I wasn't told, hey, you should go to college or you should pursue that. And this is even as a private education and parents that were spending that kind of money um, and also were, that, that owned the business. I mean, I still get it. I totally understood, I understood that part of her, your book so well, because it's conducive to that environment. I don't know how males are treated, but females are told you should marry out of this. And the longer you stay in that environment, the longer it's going to linger and stay with you. Uh, that's kind of where I am. I mean, I understand the importance of trailer parks and, and providing affordable housing, especially with wage inequality in, in America right now. I'm very cognizant of that. But I will say that if you had the choice not to do that, I would not raise my children in a trailer park. And, That's my feeling. And, and Catherine, you know, I, I mean, trailer parks, the minute we, we mentioned that we were working on this show uh, on social media, a lot of uh, very nice forward thinking uh, public media consumers said, oh, well, I mean, what's the intersection between that and tiny homes? So tiny homes is now this very um, forward looking notion of homes that don't consume that much space, that homes that have a smaller carbon imprint, that homes that are almost an ideological rejection of the high consumption McMansion style uh, life that dominated America, particularly maybe in the late 80s and, and 90s. But these, I don't know, my sense is these aren't really all that comparable movements, or, or are they? I don't think they are. I think they're really separate. I think you've got a very different demographic that's embracing one housing form over the other. Uh, say I, say I more the about that. The tiny home yeah. thing is really a, a lifestyle choice that people are able to make, and the choice is the important thing there, that people could choose other options. Um, with manufactured housing, what we mostly heard from families was this is the only thing that was available that we could afford. Uh, in terms of ownership, for sure. So it's not really a choice. It's sort of a, this was the the option I had in front of me. 
You know, just as we begin to round out this segment of the show, then, Catherine, you know, go back to what we said before. I asked you if the dream had died. Not really. But it does seem as though I mean, I guess as you as a public policy person look at this, can you see a way it could work? Can you see a way where mobile homes could be a good use of land, could give people that opportunity uh, to, to, to grab their first stepping stone uh, on some kind of progress through uh, American socioeconomic life? I think if we could make some of the reforms that we talk about at the end of the book, particularly around the, the finance piece of things, mm-hmm. um, that, that it could work better. There's also some issues around um, the building materials and exposure to toxins that would need to be um, addressed as well. And then the social piece, which is probably the toughest thing, how do we get over the idea of a stigma, um, the stigma associated with this housing forum? Um, and as Angie's described, it's, it's really, um, it's pervasive and it's very, very um, strong. All right. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think, well, I remember being a young uh, town reporter uh, in the late 70s and, and talking to a town planner who was saying, you know, people, when you say mobile home park or trailer park, people think right away, well, that's an absolutely undesirable thing. And I'm, But I mean, and he said, but we actually see this as potentially it could work. It could work. It could be the, because we don't have affordable housing. We don't have the kind of housing stock that allows people to get in here. Uh, but it just, it seems like all those prejudices that we're talking about that sit over this are, are very difficult to dissipate. Um, well, listen, uh, we, we're going to say goodbye to these two wonderful guests, Angie Cavallari. Uh, check out her book, uh, Trailer Trash, an 80s memoir. Uh, Catherine McTavish, uh, Director of Equity Inclusion and Diversity, an associate professor at College of Public Health and Human Sciences in Oregon State University, a co-author of Single Wide, Chasing the American Dream in a Rural Trailer Park. We felt like we should tell one Connecticut story here. Uh, it's hard to find Connecticut trailer park stories or, or mobile, mobile home park stories because we don't, first of all, have that many of them. But we did find uh, someone who is willing to talk, and you're going to meet him after this. Trailer park woman, she's a mobile home. The queen of manufactured housing She's a trailer park woman She's a mobile home princess And me, I'm the trailer park Yes, I'm the trailer park She loves the trailer park king This is on me, but I always thought a trailer park was a place where they showed coming attractions of movies that hadn't been released yet. My bad. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Kayla Thomas. The part of Bill Curry was played by James Carville. On tomorrow's show, the quest for happiness, including a traveler who visited the world's ten happiest countries, one of which is not this one. And now... Back to Colin. All right. So, um, you know, once again, I want to just remind everybody, you know, trailer parks, mobile homes, uh, they are a lot of different things. And some of them actually are extremely well tended and, you know, I mean, like a pretty nice condo development. And then others kind of are part of the reputation that mobile homes can and mobile home parks can have. 
and even within those, there are often people, as Angie pointed out, trying to live relatively quiet, decent, upstanding lives. But they may be surrounded by people who's, uh, who are a little bit more yahoos. Uh, anyway, we wanted to tell one Connecticut story here. We were lucky enough to find somebody that we actually kind of know from the past. Uh, Morgan Gold, filmmaker, creator of the Sad City Hartford blog, former resident of a mobile home park in South Windsor, Connecticut. He's now living uh, in upstate Vermont. Uh, and uh, he, uh, well, we'll let him uh, tell his story. We're going to play a little clip in just a second. But Morgan, uh, explain how it is you came to be living uh, in a mobile home park here in Connecticut. Sure. Thanks for having me, Colin. Sure. Um, back in 2002, right as I was graduating college up in Boston, I was trying to figure out where I was going to live. I lined up some work in the Hartford area and didn't want to necessarily go back to living at my mom's house. And so I had a buddy of mine who had just recently bought a trailer in South Windsor that was in a trailer park in South Windsor. And so he invited me to come stay with him. And so I started renting out uh, part of a trailer with him for about 150 bucks a month. It was just me, him, and his girlfriend in this you know tiny little trailer. And I spent about six months living there. Another thing that you did was create a 30-minute documentary called Trailer Park Summer, uh, which was shown at the WGBH Indie Film Festival in 2003. Let's hear a a minute or so of that. I met Psycho Mike for the first time when I moved here. You know, he's a nice guy. He's harmless, but he's just stupid beyond. You want to see this place banging and bouncing around and people jumping off roofs? (laughs) I bet you I can jump from trailer. My name is Michael New. I live at Lot 42. I want to do many things with my life. I want to do different jobs. I want to do fun jobs. I don't know. My brother, his name is Kevin. He, he's nice. Now you're gonna play a player. When Kevin was in kindergarten, Kevin stayed back because he's hyperactive. He has to take medication. Drinking and drugs. I can understand my mom doing it. Sometimes she used to smoke when I was a little baby when I used to be in her stomach. And that's why I got asthma so bad. If I could do anything, the first thing I would go for is have my own house, have a job, and have a girlfriend, and have two kids. It sounds like the American dream to me. So, uh, Morgan, uh, we, you, we heard a few people. We heard it, maybe even a few names. People might have heard the term, the name Psycho Mike uh, there at the beginning of the clip. Psycho Mike is one of the kind of protagonists uh, of this. Tell us about him. Yeah, sure. So, so he was a guy who was my neighbor, lived like three doors down in the trailer park. And, you know, one of those, one of those guys who was, you know, really sharp, really industrious, but had a crazy, crazy, crazy drinking problem at the time. And so... He would just, you know, day drink and go on rants and raves and run wild in the park, you know, get all the teenagers drunk, like just lots of craziness. But, you know, would be, you know, when sober, a pretty nice regular guy, but, you know, would get drunk a lot back in those days. Um, We might as well mention uh, two of the other uh, major figures. Uh, Little Mike. Tell us about Little Mike. Yeah, so so Little Mike, he was, uh, you know, at the time he was just a 16-year-old kid. Um, you know, really sm- nice kid, really friendly kid, um, but grew up with a lot of family troubles um, and, and just sort of struggled a lot in school, struggled with a number of things. Um, and then I think the, the person that we're hearing near the end there is uh, Kevin Jr. Tell us about Kevin. Yeah, so Kevin, he was, you know, just a, an eight-year-old kid and, uh, you know, really nice kid, really sweet, but, you know, you could start to tell that sort of the rough surroundings that he was growing up in were starting to rub off on him. And, and that was a big thrust of the whole documentary as a whole was this idea that, you know, as I looked at Kevin, then I looked at Little Mike, and then as I looked at Psycho Mike, 
there, I could see some connections and progressions kind of from each of their lives that, that really just showed how sort of circular life in the trailer park can actually be. Right. I mean, I think that's sort of something I keep coming back to is that uh, from the very beginning of this show to, to now as we're in its final segment is the myth or the dream of the mobile home is that it's a way up and out, that you, you start there and then you move up the ladder. But the reality seems to be it's a pretty heritable condition. It, it's actually uh, a way of life and a milieu that reinforces the things that keep you down at the bottom rungs. Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's true. I mean, and it, it's not just limited to trailer parks, but it's, it's intensified there yeah. where, you know, you see, you know, teenagers out drinking and smoking, you know, at like four o'clock in the afternoon and you're, you know, seven, eight years old. That's going to give you a different perception of what that type of stuff is like. If you see, you know, um, a guy in his mid-30s out there screaming and yelling at eight o'clock at night, you're going to see the world a little bit differently as well versus, you know, kind of a more traditional, quiet, simple upbringing. Um, you were kind of passing through, as far as you knew anyway. Uh, and so how did you handle that? I mean, as you met other people, as you, I mean, when you're encountering people socially elsewhere, meeting a woman at a bar or something, uh, how comfortable were you talking about where you were living? Well, you know, at, at first I was like really open to it. But, but like one of your previous guests just said, you know, there was a social stigma that I almost didn't appreciate where, you know, I was a young guy in my early 20s and I'd, you know, meet a girl and, you know, be like, hey, yeah, you want to come over to my place or go hang out? And uh, <laughs> they were just really off put by the idea, wait, you live in a trailer park, like a, a real trailer park? Like, what? Like, it was just, it was definitely a stigma that gets cast when you say that you live there. You know, I said the thing before about a heritable condition that can can pe- keep people locked into to that kind of circular, as you said, cycle. But we should also say, you know, I mean, I don't know, most of us, many of us in America now, if we don't live in cities, uh, and even if we do live in cities, we may live in apartment buildings where people don't talk to one, uh, one another very often, where your contact with your neighbors I- is relatively limited, or we live on in spacious suburban streets, or in your case, uh, large, expansive uh, rural farms, uh, where there aren't that many neighbors around, you don't talk to the people all that much unless in my case if I'm out walking a dog I might talk to my neighbors one thing I think you discovered about the trailer park was there is a real sense of community there right there's a, a sense in which you don't try to escape each other uh, very very true I mean I would you know come home from work uh, on a given day and be out there and all my neighbors would be outside and everybody would be hanging out and drinking having a beer uh, smoking cigarettes. And so, you know, they were very approachable, very welcoming. I mean, here I was this, you know, weird young guy who just went to college and now he's trying to live here. What's going on there? That's a whole weird situation. But at the same time, they were really welcoming and, you know, they really let me come in, hang out with them, ultimately let me shoot the documentary. And, and that was kind of unique. And I think as I've lived at other places around the country, that sort of welcomingness and that sort of community is it's a lot harder to find. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that freaks us out about trailer parks probably is that we've really tried to, I mean, you know, there are all these books that were written in the 70s and 80s about the pursuit of loneliness, you know, that we really sort of, our dream is to have an acre or two of land and not have to interact with other people. But there's something weird about that, too. Uh, And the idea of of a place where people are living in a slightly more communitarian, however occasionally dysfunctional mode, um, is probably a little scary to us. Um, Go ahead. Yeah. No, no, I, 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 think, I think you're right. I mean, and, and like even now as I live in the middle of nowhere today, you know, one of the things I actually find that I do hunger for is that connection and community and, and knowing your neighbors. And that's one of those things that, you know, is almost thrust upon you when you live in a trailer park. 
Yeah. But at the same time, I think, you know, there are those benefits that come with it as well. Right. We should say something about where you're living now. So uh, you actually have a, a YouTube channel about that. Uh, tell us about uh, what you're doing now. Yeah, sure. So so um, a couple of years ago, I quit my job in uh, investments and, and moved up to our farm up here in northern Vermont. And really what I'm trying to do is being a guy with very no, little to no agricultural experience, figure out what it takes to build a sustainable farm business model, one that works ecologically, economically, and emotionally for me. And so that's what I'm in the process of doing now. And our YouTube channel, we try to document it all. It's called Goldshaw Farm. And uh, we put out a couple of videos a week just trying to show that story. And let me ask you this, although I think I already know the answer. But I'm, uh, I'm assuming that you, well, ho- however uh, occasionally off-putting it was, and we should say that, you know, you had to call in the police a, a couple of oca- uh, on a couple of occasions in your time there, that this, this time in a South Windsor mobile home park is not something that you would willingly dispense with from your life, that it, it's something you've, you're glad you lived through? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, look, I, I was, I, I grew up in, you know, Marlboro, which, you know, you think of Connecticut towns, right? Mm-hmm. That's, you know, n- not necessarily synonymous with trailer parks. And, you know, went to college in Boston. And here I was coming back to Connecticut and, you know, living in a trailer park, which is so different than any other socioeconomic setting I'd ever been in. That experience there taught me a lot about people and being able to sort of understand where people are coming from. And yeah, that would be something I wouldn't want to train for the world. Did you lose track of everybody that you ever met there? No, no, no. Actually, let's see, a handful of folks. I, I still am actually in pretty good touch with uh, Little Mike. Okay. Um, I'm still <laughs> talking, you know, his sister Jamie, I still keep in touch with here or there. Sort of lost a beat on Psycho Mike, but, yeah. you know, talked to him not too long ago. Um, so, yeah, there's a handful of folks I still talk to here and there. Did they like the documentary? Did they see it? <laughs> Um, Little Mike absolutely loved it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Psycho Mike, not so much, but he didn't necessarily have qualms with it. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it's hard to be Psycho Mike and <laughs> feel as though your story can ever be told properly, I suppose. And, and I think the thing in fairness to him, too, yeah, he's progressed a lot since then. And that's where, you know, when something's a snapshot in time, right. you got to give somebody the benefit of being able to evolve. Well, that's good news, too. And I'm glad you said that. It's a good place to end. Well, yeah. there, here's the story. I mean, he has progressed significantly. He's not that guy at that time. So it isn't a completely a circular uh, story. We're going to have to stop there. Morgan Gold uh, has been talking to us about his time, uh, which is chronicled, actually, in a documentary called Trailer Park Summer. Uh, thanks very much to Josh Nalea, who uh, conceived of this show. And we actually had to cancel it one time, too. So I'm glad we finally got it on the air and got it on the air very much as we hoped it would be. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, send us your comments. You know how to find us on Colin McEnroe Show on Facebook or at WNPR Colin on Twitter.